the theme for the evening talk is the powerlessness of now. In the uh, early days of the uh, retreat, and in a progressive way from one day to the next, there has been uh, an exploration of meditation. And in that uh, exploration, there has been a simple and bare uh, attention given to what we might recall uh, called subject and object. So, in other words, the attention has been turned towards uh, an object and this object has established a relationship with the subject. Subject can be called mindfulness, object could be called breathing, subject could be called attention and object could be called uh, body, subject could be called meditation, and object could be called on uh, feelings, on mental states. And in this, there has been uh, the wish and the endeavor to strip away a lot of the superficiality which easily determines and governs our life, and to find a way to come down to a very bare actuality in which the relationship of life is looked at in the most minimal state possible. And it's regarded that through cutting away a lot of the, the dross of our existence, the subject called mindfulness and the uh, object called breath, body or state enters into a clear perspective and a clear relationship between the two. And in helping to get this established, we then ground ourselves, hopefully, in that bare actuality, in that bare relationship. What we notice, and we notice um, again and again, is how easily, in that bare relationship, the feeling or the sense of I, of me, or my, arises and it finds itself either landing on the subject or landing on the object. When it lands on the uh, subject, it will be along the lines, I am, I am looking at my, my breath. When it lands on the object, it may uh, land on um, my body. And in that movement between the subject and the object, the feeling of I arises and very, very frequently it removes us from that bare relationship. So what we notice, the, the drift of the mind, the conceiving of thought, the permeation of various uh, ideas, memories, daydreams, all the fluctuations that are going on, and we find ourselves in a kind of ephemeral world which, when we're caught in this inner world, seems and appears to be real in the moment. That the very state of mind which is going on, subject, object, 
mirroring and bouncing back on each other, all the feelings, thoughts and moods that are going on appear to be and seem to be very real at the time. And we're persuaded of the reality by the degree our self invests in what we're feeling or invests in what we're thinking. And the degree that that is important to us is the degree that the power that it gets. And the more power we give between the subject, consciousness, mindfulness, attention, and the object, the more power that we give, the more substance that we give, the more the conclusion is, I have something to work on, work with, work out, get over, overcome, dissolve, transform, change. And all of the view is emerging out of the idea there's something real and substantial going on inside of myself. What a way to live. In this relationship of this uh, event, we see that we can become so fixed in giving substance and reality and power to all this inner uh, movement and all the working out that we think has to go along uh, with it, that one of the clearest indicators for us of this is when we are living in tragic superficiality, where the self is identifying itself so much with what its likes and its dislikes. And if you and I ask ourselves, or we ask each other, what is the indication, what is the intimation or the revelation of superficiality in our life? It's living in a life where we actually think and we believe that our likes and dislikes are important. And the more superficiality we have, is determined by the amount we think about our likes and dislikes and even worse, talk about them. (laughs) We have become so infected with them, we can't bear it to be alone with them, so we feed others. Some of you may have been quite successful in the last hour. And it keeps us all, collectively and individually, at the same kind of level. Because that's the movement of our mind, which, in the delusion that goes with it, we think it's our choice, we think it's our decision, but actually it's just a movement backwards and forwards between subject and object, object and subject, self 
likes and dislikes, all immersed into it. And we can go through our life painfully unaware because that's the priority of our existence and it reflects itself in 101 ways. We shouldn't underestimate the risk of meditation. We shouldn't underestimate the influence, the, uh, the uh, impact that it has, and potentially in valuable ways and in risky ways. In the valuable way, the capacity of ourselves as human beings to really focus on the bare uh, actuality can, as I mentioned, help to cut through a lot of superficiality, be very clear from moment to moment about what is taking place, get some insight into it, and through that we build up some power of concentration as well. It's a beautiful thing to really be able to concentrate on the moment, to concentrate on what is. And certainly the teachings remind us of that again and again. The sting in the tail of this, and I hear it probably most days in a variety of ways, that with the development of the power of the concentration to place our attention on something, in meditation, on an issue, in a daily life or whatever, It doesn't take that much for the inner life to move and the sting in the tail is we find ourselves unwittingly and unwillingly concentrating on that which we do not want to concentrate on. The very power of the concentration has shifted off off the object called concentrating on the breath, concentrating on the body, concentrating on the here and now. And it's shifted, it's got some energy, focus, attention behind it, and it grasps onto something else which one doesn't want to concentrate on, and one says to oneself, why am I obsessing over this? Why is so much attention going into this? Why can't I get my mind off this? Because you've just trained your mind to concentrate, beloved ones. And you've built up a power of concentration. And the mind, surprise, surprise, has just moved. And instead of concentrating what you want to concentrate on, we find ourselves concentrating exactly on what we don't want to. Called him, (laughs) her. This, that, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then eventually the concentration begins to fall away because it's too painful. We start to refocus the attention back and one says to oneself, my gosh, my meditations or my life seem to be one of concentrating on that which I want to concentrate on 
and at times moving away from that and concentrating on what I don't want to concentrate on. And it all seems to have some power to it. I'm not sure. I remember being in the monastery <coughs> and uh, <coughs> in the time of being there first, first place was uh, th three years I was just talking with um, Guy Armstrong uh, a little while earlier today one of the uh, good teachers here at uh, Spirit Rock. And near uh, Sister Centre, Tapavan, in the, the Dardoines in uh, France, there's a monastery nearby, a Tibetan uh, monastery. And there are around 250 people in the monastery on a three-year retreat. So those of you here have been here for seven days and can't wait for the end, had some compassion for those who are on three years. <laughs> All right. While in the monastery, three or so a three-year period, sometimes in the focus of the attention, in the concentration on the immediacy of things, it would develop and flow, uh, flow along a sense of harmony and, of course, dealing with the mind which is wandering uh, backwards and forwards and generally some sense of focus of attention. And then in that, one would touch, I would touch, others would touch, places inside of ourselves which really needed our attention. In the relationship too, what you and I bring to what we look at, this is important here, what you and I bring to what we look at in ourselves is more significant than what is looked at. We say, I have this state of mind, I have this problem, I have this issue, I have this unresolved thing which is going on in my life. And we think the object, that means that which is affecting me, is so important. Nonsense. Nonsense. Something happens in the looking at that gives it an importance and the giving of it keeps it. The movement of the attention towards and what goes with it is the only means for it to uphold itself. The object cannot stand without the subject holding it up. Like as the Buddha said, like two sheaths of wheat. One falls, the other falls. But we've got it in our mind, in our construct. What I am looking at is so important. Called my life, called my health, called my body, called my state of mind, called my emotional life. Called a, we, we've given power to the object it doesn't have unless the subject agrees to it. It's a conspiracy within 
to maintain a problem, mostly for entertainment purposes, <laughs> something to talk about. It has no existence without the one who wishes to perpetuate it. Such a phenomena. The object of our attention depends on the subject to believe it. About anything. It's a conspiracy. All agreed on it. Nothing stands up by itself. It's a show. It's a mirage. It's a, it's a house of cards. Shake the house of cards and one sees the emptiness of it. Sometimes when we look and explore, We can get the idea, only an idea, that the here and now, the present moment, is significant. Unfortunately, we poor dreadful meditation teachers actually reinforce this idea. Because we keep telling each other, be here and now, be in the moment, there is only the moment, this is it, what else do I say? (laughs) Be present, see what is, running out of things, getting old. Anyway, you get the idea. This Emphasis gives a reinforcement to the idea that the present moment has an existence independent, that it's somehow special, that it's so important that there is dare I say, there is, dare I say, the power of now. (laughs) And with dutiful obedience, we all nod our head in approval, and by the book, (laughs) and forget to go deeply within and to see that the attention and the object, that the attention and the way of looking has empowered the now. And we believe it because we've persuaded each other this is how things really, really, really are. 
they are really, really not like that. <laughs> I know you don't believe me. <laughs> so we engage in the perception in an isolation, an isolated way of looking called the moment, called the now. And when we have this as something very significant, we keep experiencing in a rather difficult, if not frustrating way, what not being now. We say, I was on that retreat and I was so here and now. I was so now. But now I'm not now. (laughs) Well, so much for the power of now. (laughs) It's so powerful, I can't live with it. (laughs) So the movement of the mind totally undermines the view. There is no human being who can be totally in the now. One couldn't even function like that, live like that. So the unfoldment of the event does, sometimes miraculously, place us in the moment. We feel we're right now, whatever it is, because it's incredibly painful or incredibly joyful, or because we're incredibly concentrated, and the conditions that come together make it possible, so to speak, to be right now, and sometimes the conditions don't allow it, and so we're all over the place. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, we don't know if we're on foot or horseback. And the now, what's that? What's that? So there's something about human life, about its <coughs> revelation, which beautifully and mercifully and thankfully doesn't allow any view of life to have any absolute authority. I think it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. I think it's a great relief that whatever view I, as a poor human being, Walla, wandering around on this earth, whatever I express about anything, I can equally take a radically different view bearing no relationship to the one I just expressed and both of them can be held out there in front of consciousness and both of them are so mutually dependent they crash on each other. The power of now, the powerlessness of now. I can argue for, against, both, 
neither. My mind, my inner life, with my view, is only the view. Understood brings natural humility. Nobody's got a handle on the truth. Brilliant. Brilliant. Such a relief. Nobody. So free like that. Even when I look at the now, in quotation marks now, of course, <laughs> when I look at the now, And I look a little bit more attentively and deeply to it. Whatever in it that you and I look at, whatever there is that I give attention to, I can't see or observe anything which helps to show me it stands by itself. So even if I take the great generality called the now, this lovely metaphysic. Look a little bit carefully and I say, whatever is going on here is only going on here because of all the causes and conditions that make it possible, which are not visible to my eye or my ear, but there is a knowing inside. And all that's revealing itself here in the next moment is slightly but noticeably changing from the previous moment. So as a human being, I can't get hold of anything long enough to get an opinion about it. Life doesn't let me. I can talk to the cows come home, the deers cross the park, the, 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 whatever, the snakes wander by, the little uh, other insects are running around, and I can't get hold of the moment long enough for the inner life to form a view about what it is. It's not possible. So I live in this extraordinary state where I think I've got views about things which matter. What? What? I'm just talking clap, trap. And every human being who's ever walked on the earth has never, ever said anything significant about anything. <laughs> never. It's not possible. And we've got it in our imagination that we have and we can 
and we will. May Allah be merciful. How is it that we actually have the audacity to think that what comes out of the mouth, what comes out of the fingers writing, what comes out into the thought has anything to do with anything? How could it? How could it? How could anything which is said say anything about that? How can the word ocean say anything about ocean? How could the word life say anything about life? How could the power of now say anything about We are so deluded with our language, so deluded with our words, so deluded with our sense of self-importance about Since I look at <coughs> the power of now, and my inner life, whatever that is which is revealing itself, is rather helpless to get a handle on, if I really sense that, really deep, really genuinely sense that, it might well be that something, so to speak, in within, becomes rather quiet. I'm actually helpless as a human being to communicate what this is in which we are so-called living. And when the inner life becomes quiet, it becomes rather still, it becomes rather silent because there is nothing which can be uttered which could possibly communicate the unutterable. And it might be that I kind of move, quote, quote, into another sense of silence of being where any movement of the inner life to try to um, describe is foolish. That the very nature of things is so indescribable that any construct of the word, the language, the picture, the story, the event, doesn't communicate it. picture is not the fact. The idea is about is not what it is. And it's for that reason that meditation has a function because it leaves us truly helpless in any construction of the idea. 
I'm rendered silent because anything else is useless. When we look to the present, some of you have been, let me uh, take a sideways uh, step for a moment. Some of you have been to satsang. It, sat means um, truth, and sangha. Sang, sangha, means community. Community of people who are looking at the truth. This is the meaning of satsang. And, and it may show itself as a, a dialogue, as an inquiry, as, a, as a, a gathering, as an exploration. One could say the inquiries here are kind of satsang. If I give power to the now and make it special or separate from all else, and the now being, essentially what I see, hear, smell, taste and touch, what's so-called going on now, if I isolate that and give that significance, I could easily end up trying or thinking this now, whatever, is permanent. It goes on and on. And then sometimes we will hear hmm, uh, satsang or elsewhere of the self, of the true self, whatever that is, I never fathomed it out, of the true self in the here and now, in the eternal now. And we find our true self. Do you know what, if that was true? Finding of one's true self, which is permanent in the eternal now. Do you know know what that would mean? It would mean, in this moment, you and I would be in this situation, not for a long time, forever. I don't know about you, I'd regard it as my worst nightmare. <laughs> that, there is, that one realizes one's true self, which is permanent and unchanging, in the eternal now. Please, now, thank you. We would be frozen in this. I mean, some of you are already looking forward to ten more minutes and it's finished. Can you imagine eternity? Whoa! I mean, that's a hell of a long time for us to be in this room together. You know, we might get thirsty. So sometimes the view which appears to be appealing, cut to the bone a little bit deeper, 
that this exploration of our so-called engagement with life means that in the exploration of it nothing itself has any real power. Such a phenomenon. That that which I describe as a problem can't actually be located. I might be thinking a lot about something with a lot of thoughts and feelings and ideas. And it seems to be so important what I'm thinking about. And then I put my attention totally to this which is so preoccupying me and worrying me and it's got my attention, it's the object of all my uh, focus, and I put my attention to what I'm thinking about so much, so much, I really put my attention to it. Damn it, every thought has gone. Every thought. And there, thinking, 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 thinking. Oh, let me look at the thought. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> what happened to them? I cannot find all those thoughts. I can't say, thought, come, come back. Let me have a good look at you. They only function for those who do not have attention. And once I give the thought, really want to look at the thought, really give it attention, it's gone. We can't track it anywhere in the brain cell. We don't know what happened to it. We don't know where it came from. We don't know where it's going to. We don't even know the hell where it is. Just put full attention to it and it's absolutely gone. It came mysteriously. It stayed mysteriously. It went mysteriously. And as soon as I look at it, it's a totally empty existence. What the hell are we doing making a fuss about a few little thoughts dancing in and out of our brain cells? They are powerless. They have no substance to them. I can't show them to anybody. And if I look, I can't even show them to myself. I can't even find them. I don't know how they crept up on me and suddenly leapt into consciousness and I started making a huge fuss about it and ended up in therapy for a decade. (laughs) All because I believed that my thought is telling me something. All that it is telling me is that the thought is telling me I am completely unimportant unless I think it so, think otherwise. The whole show within is a complete realm of massive self-deception. It's utterly empty. 
and I don't need someone else to tell me. I just have to close my eyes and put some real focus and attention in the moment that I can't see a thought. It creeps up. Why not? Creeps up, creeps in, creeps out. Why not? See the emptiness of it, the powerlessness of it, the unproblematicness of it. A thought is just a thought. It was never anything else. It never will be anything else. It never mattered when it arose and it never mattered when it went. It's a thought. Such a phenomena we live in. I say, don't bow down to Buddha images. Bow down to thoughts. (laughs) Sometimes when we look into life, we feel some sense of wonder and mystery and unutterableness about it and inexplicability about it. That no one has the answer. No one's resolved it. No one can say, this is how it is. And even all that which is being expressed here and now is just more emptiness. If you are persuaded by what Christopher says this evening, good luck. (laughs) If you are persuaded by what others tell you, good luck. And most of all, if you are persuaded by what yourself tells you, (laughs) really good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's, it's a relief. There's something quite freeing about it, that I don't have to have a model of what existence is, because there isn't one. I don't have to have a set of views about what existence is, because there isn't one. I don't even have to have a view that there is existence, because every moment of existence is revealing a non-existence. Candles there, it exists, same place, it just got blown out. The last moment existed, it's gone, fresh ones come. So I can't even have a view of that existence because it's, I'm totally discouraged by the non-existence. I've got nowhere to go and no one who can tell me, not myself, not other self. Nowhere to rely. And one still keeps thinking. Lovely. Why not? Why shouldn't we? We're human. So we just, our thoughts come. Come on. 
some more, why not? How many did Howie say? 16,000 in a day? It's not enough. More. It's not going to make any difference to anything. So I think in the teachings, not to use the too fancy a word, of uh, waking up, it's to remember our humanness in this glorious participation in all of this. The sense I can't get a handle on things. And I've acknowledged this. Deep down I've acknowledged this. I don't have the answer. And there is no answer. And in that, there's some kind of resolution. Buddha put it rather, rather beautifully, metaphorically. He said, the sense of relief, of not having to search and to seek and to pursue, and the, and the, and the sense of this uh, liberating wonder, that we are participating in. He said, it's like someone who's been in debt for a long time. He's been struggling for a long time to clear the debt. And one day, he or she, that the debt's over. And then the Buddha said, how would you feel if you had been in debt for a long, long time, paying off your debts? And one day, the debt's finished. How would you feel? As the Buddha did, he asked these questions. He never seemed to be patient enough to wait for other people to answer them. You, you see, just, you know, I think he must think that people listening to him are completely stupid. So he say, how do you think be if you had this incredible debt and the day comes and you paid off the debt? They said, would you, you feel great relief? Feel great relief? And they, oh yeah, yeah, great relief. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The blindingly obvious. And then he said, supposing you've been in prison for a long time. You know, I was talking with a man in Nablus two or three uh, years ago. Been in an Israeli jail. Oh, by the way, for those of you from the Jewish community, very happy new year. I had some nice emails today from Israel wishing me a very happy new year. It's nice to have two in one year. Anyway. So, he was in an Israeli jail since 1967. No trial, of course. Trial? What? No, he was just stuck in the cell. And then just one morning, he, uh, they came to him. They walked him to the front of the jail and just pushed him out. <laughs> and he, he said to me, he didn't know what... Where, 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 <laughs> Where they go, left, right, whatever. <laughs> but the relief, he's out, he's free. And then he went into Nablus, looking for family and friends after 27 years. Didn't turn, just walked into the front door, said, here, out you go. Or the Buddha said, if you've been sick, you know, really in hospital for a long, 
a long time and then the day comes and you're, you're well and you're ready. How, what would the feeling be? Relief. And to some degree, when the seeker, who is the subject, and the sort, whether it's called named or unnamed, it finishes, it drops, it collapses, it's a relief. And there's a natural sense of a, a very natural freedom with life. And it's quite indestructible. It's not dependent on birth. It's not dependent on change. It's not dependent on aging or dying or, 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 or death. One sees that essentially, having seen through the fictions of the mind, essentially there is no problem whatsoever with life. In its true nature, it is utterly unproblematic. Utterly unproblematic. And only the mind which doesn't see clearly thinks otherwise. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into things. May all beings live a truly liberated life. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? <coughs> 